There's a place where lovers go to cry their troubles away, and they call it Lonesome Town, where the broken hearts stay. You can buy a dream or two. Hello, welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. And in this episode, I'm going to be continuing my um, deep dive into Stephen King's novel, It. And um, and today we're going to look at two really big chapters. Uh, I think it's chapters 8 and 9. Um, Georgie's Room in the House on Ebold Street is uh, chapter 8, and chapter 9 is Cleaning Up. So these are uh, essentially the chapters from uh, Richie's and... Bev's point of view, but we also get, uh, uh, I guess, uh, we get a lot of Bill. We get Stan's uh, point of view as well here. So with this, uh, we, we get all the encounters by, uh, by the losers, um, their first encounters with, with It described, except for Richie. I mean, Richie's a special case because he, he encountered It uh, at some point earlier, I think in the spring. But he chalked it up to a dream, and he didn't really realize it um, until until adulthood that he was that was actually an encounter with it. That's really clever uh, that Stephen King did that, I think, because he's not just it's a little repetitive, right? So he we do have a few straightforward, you know, flashbacks intermixed with the stuff going on in June of '58, but he kind of changes things up a little bit with. Um, with how Stan's story is told, how Mike's story is told, how Richie's first encounter is is told, so um, yeah, um, so I think these chapters work quite well. There's also a lot going on here about the creation of this uh, this group, the seven people, this quartet, if you will, this magic number seven, as talked about many times in the book. Maybe not at this point yet, but uh, it is uh, it's discussed later in the novel. And it's certainly a major theme. Uh, we have that, and we have uh, like a battle with with it. That's actually described here, one of the most intense uh, in this early part of the of the book. We're also able at this point to kind of uh, sketch out the timeline in a little more detail. It, it's certainly useful to do this when you're reading this book because there is so much flashbacks. Um, so the first actual murder is Dorsey Cochran, and that was more of like a sacrifice by his stepfather, uh, inspired by it, but not caused by it. Then we have Georgie and Betty Ripscomb uh, in, in 1957. Um, then uh, the first of the losers to encounter it directly is Ben with the mummy in the winter of early 1958. Um, then we have Mike and Richie's encounter around the same time. Uh, Mike encounters the bird, of course, and Richie encounters the um, the Paul Bunyan statue. Um, then we're going to have uh, around the same time Eddie and well Stan first sees the ghost in the standpipe, which we'll we'll talk about in a little bit. Um, then we have uh, Eddie encountering the leper. And what's the order here? Um, let me make sure I get it right. 
All right, it's about this time. Yeah, next is Bill beginning to have these encounters with uh, with the picture, um, and then him and Richie go back and visit the picture. That's what we're going to talk about. This is in chapter eight, and it cuts Bill's finger. So that's kind of an attack by it through this photo. So the photo went from just sort of menacing to actually um, to violent. Then this is followed by Richie and Bill encountering the werewolf at the house of Neville Street because they go back to the place that Eddie encountered it. And then finally it's Bev encountering it, it with, uh, with the bathroom uh, and blood incident. So this is essentially the timeline of how they, they, they all encountered it. So it's over a six-month period for all the losers to have a direct encounter with it. And there's a bunch of other murders happening at the time. Veronica Grogan, um, Eddie Cochran, who we already talked about. And there's, um, there's other murders, I think. But anyways, so with these chapters, we sort of get that whole timeline all the way back to, to uh, Georgie's death and even before it worked out, except for the... Um, except for uh, Richie's encounter with it, which isn't uh, revealed until later. Or I should say his first encounter with it. All right, so chapter eight. It's just a huge chapter. I think it's 70 pages, I want to say. Um, or pretty close to it. It might be... It's not the longest chapter in the book. But that would be um, in the Watches of the Night, which is a really long chapter flipping back and forth between 1958-1985 um, and really setting up the the confrontation in the sewer in both timelines. So that's a really long chapter and it takes King, you know, about 10% of the book just to set that up uh, in August of 1958. Um, uh, that story is great stuff. I can't wait to get to that particular story. Um, but, uh, but yeah, this might be the second longest chapter in the book. Um, pretty sure. So anyways, again, as I said, this is from, um, Richie's uh, point of view and he's uh, I believe he's driving to Derry from Boston I suppose because he, he flew from San, from LA or something to 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 Boston or maybe it's Bangor but he's, uh, or not Bangor wouldn't it be Augusta someplace like that um, should have wrote it down but he's driving up to to uh, Derry from there and uh, and then he starts thinking about the dam and the last we saw uh, we talked about the dam as a as evidence of the power of the group, the power of the losers to transform their physical environment. And I even played with the idea that, you know, the dam stopping water and it being associated with water and the barons being associated with the boys and their place. There's some kind of symbolism there, I think, uh, King is playing with. So, um... Anyways, the flashback, though, starts with uh, Officer Nell stopping the boys from building the, the dam. And this is a really fun scene because it's also the first introduction we get to another one of uh, Richie's voices. We actually have uh, uh, several of his voices mentioned here, like uh, the, the Piccaninny voice, which I'll talk about in a minute, but the, the Irish cop's voice. Um, there's a few others. Those are the two the most memorable of his voices and we got to remember or at least uh it's if you've already read the book like i have you gotta you can't stop thinking about the fact that um the irish cop voice is one of the great weapons they use against it not just in 58 but in 85 
Richie's able to weaponize this voice. Um, even though it's not considered very good. But I want to talk the, about the Piccanini voice. Because there is a... Um, people pick on King, I think, a little bit too much about his dealing with race. Um, sometimes he's a little awkward. Like, and, um, what's it? The, the girl who loved Tom Gordon. Where we have this young girl kind of drawing from racial stereotypes from the 50s or something that, that are in King's mind, but they're not in, um, they wouldn't have been in a girl raised in, in the 90s in her mind. Um, maybe in Mr. Mercedes too, there's a bit of playing with this kind of, um, um, this racist caricature type voice for, for black people. And, and Richie's doing it here, but it's important here that in the 1950s, it's not uncommon for white people in white communities. And race is a big theme in this book. It's probably more of a theme than in any other of his books, uh, where he actually deals with racial oppression in a very interesting way. And he connects it to American history and the experience of, of black people in America is associated, intertwined with it, right? Because I've, I've said before, I think this book can be looked at as a metaphor for American experience in a lot of ways and of course race is going to be, be a big part of it so Richie's voice his Piccanini voice yeah it's a racial stereotype but I would urge you to think of books like um, The Wages of Whiteness by David Rodeker and other books in the so-called whiteness studies field which is a field I'm largely think is I think it's rather, rather rather interesting that they explore it it's exploring kind of the american white working class experience uh, through the lens of race and understanding the implicit advantages of being even a member of the white working class not just not to mention the white ruling class in america and that there's some you know, the term white privilege, of course, gets used a lot to talk about this, but I'm not sure that's how David Roderker exactly talks about it. He calls it the wages of whiteness, which, of course, sounds like privilege. And that's certainly what he's talking about. But he mentions how when he was growing up in this very white town, which is kind of a place I grew up in, too, uh, a fairly homogenous uh, mid-sized city. So there's a lot like I'm, my, the hometown I grew up in, Wausau, Wisconsin, is almost the same size as Derry. Um, it has a lumber history too. I mean, there's some interesting parallels, but racially homogenous is part of it. Not that you didn't have black people in either of these towns. Obviously you do, but it's a minority and how people growing up in those communities are inculcated with racist stereotypes, even if they don't encounter many black people. And that's kind of Rodiger's point. And that psychological, uh, benefit of being able to say, I am better than a black person is 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 not always contingent on actually being in a position to directly oppress black people. It's a benefit that comes to white people even when they're not slaveholders or getting higher wages in a factory than their than black comrades or or not excluding black people from the union or all these other examples of of the white working class experience in terms of race. Now, it's been a while since I read this book, but I thought of it. And I, I'm just saying this to, to suggest that Richie's a product of that environment, right? And of course, racial stereotypes from American culture at the time, from a very white community, are going to be part of that. Even if uh, that doesn't necessarily mean he's 
I mean, he's as racist as, as anyone growing up in that community would be. I guess that's what I want to say. So yes, Richie's voice is racist, but there's uh, it's drawn from reality. And I think King is trying to say that this is how white people, including himself probably, talked about black people in this type of neighborhood. That's my, my guess, and I don't know if that's by way of forgiving Richie, but I think we should certainly for, um, su not suggest that King is playing off racial stereotypes. He's trying to make as realistic as he can an account of what it was like to grow up in uh, this type of town in America at this time. Uh, I mean, obviously these kids are the same age as, as King was, I think, to the to, almost to, to the year, right? So anyways, um, they destroy the dam. Officer Nell says, you got to destroy this dam because it's flooding the whole um, uh, the whole barrens and causing all kinds of mess. And, and he went to investigate because he thought a tree blocked it down. He lo and behold, it's these kids who built this awesome dam. And they have to tear it down. And, and then Richie also does another kind of racist stereotype. It's the Irish cop's voice. And we got to remember uh, how the Irish became white. Another book in kind of whiteness studies and whiteness labor history studies. Um, I could just repeat what I all just said about uh, the wages of whiteness for that text, uh, how the Irish became white. So Richie kind of is trying to perfect his Irish cop voice here. But anyways, they destroy the dam and eventually they go home. Now, Richie and Bill, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of background here about Richie's family. It seems to be slightly better off. Like he's mentioned having the biggest yard on the block or something. Um, he doesn't have a brother. Almost, I think none of these have siblings now. I mean, Bill did, but Bill's brother died. So I don't think any of the losers have siblings. Um, or at least none of them play a major role. I'm pretty sure none of them have. That's significant too, I suppose, because siblings may help you connect you to your past and your childhood in, in, in ways that friends can't. Um, so it's part of important to the forgetting or something. Um, or maybe that's there's a theme there. I don't know. But we get Richie's family and Richie wants to uh, basically talk Bill into investigating the photo open in Georgia's room. Because this is after Bill told the story and Eddie told his story and Ben told his story. And of course, Richie doesn't think he has a story. So he's trying to be the rational one. And he's t he has this long conversation with Bill and Bill breaks down during this conversation. It's quite um, tragic to see him break down and he's stuttering and he can't say what he wants to say and it's so full of emotion and guilt in pain over the loss of his brother and Richie's trying to calm him down and say you know what you were seeing it's either the monster if that's real um or if it's Georgie's ghost that's probably not right because Georgie wouldn't hate you for just trying to build make him a boat he wouldn't blame you for that he would blame the murderer so I think Richie's playing with the idea like maybe it's all in your mind it's just guilt and maybe there is someone in a clown suit killing kids so I think that's Richie's attempt to try to find a reasonable explanation but he also is curious like any kid would be about the supernatural if your friend said they have a ghost in their room you probably when you were a kid you probably want to go and visit the house right and visit their bedroom and see the ghost for yourself I, I know I had that experience too um, with a, a, a good friend I had until about sixth or seventh grade and and that he had a really awesome basement I remember and the and that house, there was always these stories that they would tell about ghosts and creatures, him and her sister. And it was really fun to kind of play with that. And it was kind of a creepy basement with like all the dead animal heads. I, my parents didn't hunt, but most uh, people in my 
hometown hunted and so i didn't have that kind of stuff i didn't have like the, i think even had like a bear rug or something so if you're out there listening um you know you know who you are i think but you know we were interested in the supernatural we did ouija boards and stuff like that too so i would totally buy richie son let's check this out and he finally talks bill into it and the parents or bill's parents are still sort of catatonic and indifferent to what bill's doing so they just let him go up there not really investigate what they're doing and they go and check out the photo album and there's a wonderful scene here it's actually one of the scarier um, moments in the book where they because if you remember there was like blood in the in the photo and i think like richie winks and there's stuff like that that's what bill experienced but they don't find that picture of george they instead find like this picture of old time dairy and they're in the picture and the clown's in the picture, but the clown doesn't have like the Pennywise face. It has the, it has like a Georgie face and it's super, super creepy. Let's see if I can find it. Let me read this. The boys contemplated their turn coming full face and a moment later, Richie saw what they've been looking at as a mangy dog come trotting across Center Street. The boy in the sailor suit, Bill, raised two fingers to the corner of his mouth and whistled. Stunned beyond any ability to move or think, Richie realized he could hear the whistle, could hear the car's irregular sewing machine engines. The sounds were faint, like sounds heard through thick glass, but they were there. End quote. So that, that's, I'm just, I'll come back to this, but I want to stop here and say that. So they're hearing the sounds. They're in the photo. They're watching the photo. It's moving and they're hearing sounds. So obviously it's super freaky. To move on, uh, the dog glanced towards the boys, then trotted up. The boys glanced at each other, then laughed like chipmunks. They started to walk on, and then Richie, in knickers, grabbed Bill's arm and pointed towards the canal. They turned in that direction. No, Richie thought. Don't do that. Don't. They went to the low concrete wall, and suddenly the clown popped over the edge like a horrible jack-in-the-box. The clown with George Denbro's face, his hair slicked back, his mouth a hideous grin full of bleeding grease paint, his eyes black holes. One hand clutched three balloons on a string. With the other... He reached out for the boys in a sailor suit and seized his neck. Um, and then Bill and Richie kind of react as if this is really happening. And eventually Bill puts his fingers into the picture and they go in. It's like three-dimensional. And they cut his finger. And it suggested like if he would have kept them there, he would have lost his hand or his fingers. He pulled them out just in time. So it's like razor blade cuts on his fingers. Um, so he's like almost crossing into another dimension, it seems. And his body's having this, you know, physically altered by the fact that he's doing that. Um, so this is an attack on the boys. It, it, it's an attempt to get them, to kill them, it seems to me. Through that. And I asked last time about the geography of, of dairy and how it usually appears near the canals or near water, or near, near that kind of stuff. But here, somehow he's able to possess Georgie's room. Um, so maybe he's a little limited in what he's able to do in this location. Um, so anyways, they, they're freaked out by this and they leave the room. So that's kind of the first part of the chapter. The second part of the chapter then is a, is, uh, Richie, Ben and Beverly. So this is our really first encounter to Beverly as a kid. I think she was, she's obviously mentioned cause Ben talks about her, but this is the first where we meet her as kind of part of the losers. And there's another boy that like. Bill's friends with because they go to speech therapy together, but he's not part of the losers. He's not part of the group. But Bev is seen right away as being part of the group. And Richie and Beverly started to go on this date with 
with Ben. So it's like Richie and Beverly's date, but Ben's tagging along. Um, and they go to the movie, and the movies they go to are two movies that King specifically mentions in Dance Macabre, which I think was written a year or two before this book. So uh, these are movies he talks about as integral to his upbringing as, as, a, as, as a kid. He actually talks about them as, as classic films of this period growing up. So um, it's not a coincidence that those movies are mentioned, but they're a double feature here. And maybe they were played together uh, back in 1958. I'm not sure, but one is I am a teenage werewolf and the other is I'm a teenage Frankenstein. And they go to the movie, but first, <coughs> first, I think Richie has to do some chores around the house to collect money. Um, and he does that. He has the two bucks he needs to take uh, Ben and Bev to the movies and they enjoy it. And there's a whole section here about Richie's desire to see these movies and how much movies mean to him. It's, it's very much... How King talks about movies in Dance Macabre. So uh, we have this. Uh, so again, through this day, we get our first kind of introduction to Bev as a member of the Losers. And she's teaching them how to play with the yo-yo and she's bringing cigarettes and she's right away contributing to the group in a substantial way. Um, and we also see another important theme that is a bit maligned in this book. Um, but I think it has to be addressed and, and thought about. And that is um, this whole point of maturation, <laughs> of growing up, is so central to this book. And sexuality is, is part of that growing up. And yeah, that scene at the end of the book where they have sex with each other in order to kind of rebond after def almost defeating it. To allow them to get out of the, the the sewers, it's it bothers a lot of people, and I'm not entirely comfortable with it either. But I understand King's point here of somehow talk, especially for Beverly, um, sexual maturation being key to that growing up process, and it's key to the transition between like the childhood horrors and adult horrors and adult fears. Um, because sexuality is so much bound up in those adult fears in ways that they aren't for a 10 or 11 year old. But this is the cusp of where, you know, boys start to get interested in girls. And we see that with Richie and, of course, Ben. Ben being apparently slightly ahead of the curve on his attraction towards Beverly. But Richie's not that far behind. So it is sort of a date. It is sort of Beverly and Richie's first date, even though Ben's tagging along. Now, at the movies, they have an encounter with the bullies. That doesn't really go anywhere they they're, they're able to get away it's um it's uh just setting up some other events that we're going that are going to be described later on especially the the rock fight the growing um kind of conflict between these two gangs if you will so anyways that's uh so after this encounter with georgie's room we we in georgie's room richie is able to sort of move on he, he's uh you know, I guess Stan's is apparently this hyper-rational one. But Richie's able to compartmentalize his life in ways that I think kids are able to do. And that, like, Beverly's able to do it. All these losers are able to set aside, um, like, the horrors that they experienced in, in, in Derry and their friendship and their community and their, their just enjoyment of life, right? 
which is something that I think like Henry Bowers is able to do. Like he's hyper focused on the losers, hyper focused, like obsessed with it. He can't escape it in ways that these other losers can. I think that's part of their power, right? And the power of that group. If they were alone, if they were all alone over the summer, they probably would be less capable of escaping the, the, the an obsession with this this creature. So we flip ahead in time a little bit to the end of June. And Richie then recruits, or Bill recruits Richie, actually. That's right. Bill recruits Richie to say, let's investigate the house on Ebold Street. Now, this is the classic neighborhood haunted house. We've met it before in the Eddie chapter, but this is our first real look at it. And, of course, Richie ends up going, and they have a whole plan. Like, Bill brings his father's gun. Uh, Richie leaves his bike behind, and they both ride silver because it's a faster bike. So they're fairly well prepared. Uh... As it could be, and even like Richie jokes at one point, like, like if this really is a monster, what are we supposed to do? And Bill's like, well, we'll try to kill it. And he's thinking of it like, in, like he's a movie character. And and Richie, who's obsessed with this media, is saying, well, that's not really how it works in reality, right? He's able to see the difference between movies and reality. But nevertheless, he brings his he's, he jokes like, oh, I'll bring my my sneezing powder, which is an old like fifties gag. I, I don't think I've ever actually seen this but it's supposed to be some powder you throw on people and make them sneeze it's supposed to be a gag he says i'll bring this i'll bring this uh sneezing powder and they have a laugh over it but richie eventually brings it right and anyways they go to investigate the house on Nebold street and there they ha they battle it they sneak into the house and it's an old house that still has this like coal um it's still a coal-based furnace that doesn't have an oil furnace yet and they're they're in the they kind of crawl through the basement window and get down there into the the cellar and they encounter it in the form of the teenage werewolf specifically the teenage werewolf but it doesn't have the zipper in the back to borrow a the phrase he king uses in dance macabre like in those movies you always see that zipper in the end and there's always that ability to suspend disbelief a little bit uh, or there, there, there's, there's always, I, I should say, there's, um, you have to use your imagination to suspend disbelief because what's in front of you is clearly not real, but uh, this is like good special effects, right? This is actually the real werewolf um, or the form of it. And they barely escape uh, with the help of Silver and Richie uses his Irish cop voice to stop him. And it's, it's described not as like the Irish cop voice that he used earlier when they destroyed the dam making fun of mr nell it's like like the apotheosis of the irish cop um so he's able to use magic at this point that's very very key uh they shoot him and they shoot the werewolf they shoot it uh and richie uses sneezing powder on it and it works uh, so magic is at play here uh to help them escape so this is the first time the losers try to confront it directly and in a group and they just two of them are able to do damage. They're able to almost succeed. All right. Now, every murder we've seen has been uh, alone. Right. Where he's never been. It's never been confronted. I should say it's never been confronted as a group. There are murders where there's a group involved, like the Adrian Mellon murder. But this is the first time it's being confronted as a group. And there's only two. And they're able to damage it i'm not sure how close they were to actually killing it or hurting it but they're able to get away 
and it was trying to kill them both. So, um, and at the end of this scene, when they finally get away on Silver, they just break down and cry, and that ends the chapter. All right. So, what to say? What how to interpret this chapter? What to say about it? Well, it's super super long, <laughs> obviously, and it really is a lot about Richie and Bill's relationship, and Richie's relationship with the other losers. So that's key. It's a really about building that quartet. Um, and it, of course, culminates in a, a, essentially a victory against it. Let's call it that. I mean, it's um, their survival at that point is a victory. Now, we also have many weapons being collected in this chapter by our heroes. We have uh, uh, silver being used as a tool. I think I suggested before it's not really used that much, but I forgot about this moment where they actually use it to get away. Other times, yeah, it's not used directly in a battle, but it is here and it's how they survive. We have Richie's cop voice. We have the sleeping powder. We have uh, Bill's father's gun. Um, these are all used as weapons against it. And of course, um, its weaknesses are revealed here and that's it's weakened by, um, by belief, by magic. It's not just the form, it's weak, it's, 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 it's vulnerable to whatever can kill its form, as that movie version. Ah, I went a half hour without talking about the movie. But that's good enough. It's not just that. It also involves belief, right? Because as it describes it very later on, it's like, I can take the form of a vampire, but a child can, will believe that a stake can kill a vampire, so I'm vulnerable. Um, so they learn about its, its weaknesses and they learn quite a lot about its nature, that it's shape-shifting, that, uh, it's got its limits. It, it seems to certain locations, it's most powerful. It, uh, you know, it's, can, it's, can take you when you get, you're alone. I mean, this is what Mr. Nell tells them. Mr. Nell tells them never always be as a gang. And he's absolutely right. He doesn't know they're fighting them entity or maybe he does it's totally possible that that now on some level he's old enough to maybe experience this before to know to say yeah i know how i survived my own encounters with it maybe he forgot but he knows subconsciously stayed together as a gang yeah i like that interpretation i like that um so we learn a lot about it in this chapter we also learn a lot about childhood belief like the sleeping the sneezing powder, the, the Irish cop voice, uh, Richie's attempt to rationalize things. Like when the way they talk about the afterlife and Georgie's ghost are things, it's really a child's logic about these things. But it matters because that's the first line of the book, right? The magic's real. The magic's real. Childhood belief is a real magic for, in King's mind here. And it can be a weapon or it can be a vulnerability to you um, in these encounters. And we learn a lot about the nature of belief that it is uh that it is fluid that um trauma is not the only thing in these kids lives we learn that too that's very important um their friendship as as important as the trauma they face now obviously we have a haunted uh house scene um now in a sense king has been building up to this book in the previous novels Right, with he explores different monsters. He explores the vampire and the werewolf and um, magic uh, in other books. 
And here he kind of puts it all together. He explored the haunted house uh, as best he could in previous books, and he includes it here too. He explores the growing up uh, in the 50s in the body, and he kind of puts a capstone on that. He, ex- he is exploring bullying and, and the violence of the bully, uh, which he explored in many books. So it all comes to a head here. And of course, the haunted house is the apotheosis of, of haunted houses. Yeah, the house on Nebold Street. It's totally out of place. It shouldn't even exist in a town like Derry, but there it is, because a town like this must have a haunted house. Now, another thing is, this is our first introduction to Beverly, really, as a member of the group. And the question is, what contributions does she make to the group? What's her relationship to the various boys, such as, uh, like, Richie and Ben in particular, but even Bill? Um... And how does she fit in in ways that other boys don't? And yes, attraction is part of it. Now, Bill's the one who leads. This is also one of the first moments. I guess Bill sort of took some leadership with the dam. But this is Bill really being a leader here, where he says, we're going to try to kill this. We're going to investigate the house on Nebold Street. We're going to bring weapons. We're going to prepare first, and he does a pretty good job. And, and thanks to his preparation, they survive. And there's clear evidence here directly that the losers are being brought together by supernatural forces. The turtle, the turtle. Uh, it's not simply fear of it, because that could draw any group it gets together. These kids are brought together out uh, by some outside force. Um, and then we have, of course, the harm that Rich is able to inflict on the werewolf. So a whole lot to unpack in this really, really great chapter. So I could almost end the episode here and be pretty satisfied that I'm, we're making significant progress in the book. But um, I'm going to move on. I'm going to do the last chapter, which also is fairly long, 50 pages. Chapter 9, Cleaning Up. Um, now this is r- long in part because it also tells the story of Stan's first encounter with it. Um, and we also get a long, uh, I think we get almost 10 or 12 pages just on Beverly leaving Chicago and getting to um, New York and then getting to Derry. So we got that with all the characters, but it's particularly long in the case of Beverly because she's got a little more work to do. Uh, she doesn't have any money. She doesn't have uh, the resources. She's wealthy. She does have money, but she doesn't have the same. She's fleeing her home (laughs) in a way that the others aren't. I guess Eddie is too, but they're they're not fleeing a violent, abusive husband who's set on murdering her. On murdering them. And so she has to, there's a little more work involved. And so... Beverly has to go see her friend, who's a feminist, kind of a cliche feminist from the from the 70s. Um, if you've studied 60s, 70s feminism, you know this character um, pretty well. It's like a Geraldine Green type of figure, even down to the non-monogamy and everything and the participation in the sexual revolution. Her name's Kay, by the way. Her at her her joy when hearing that Bev has left uh, left uh, her husband. Uh, uh, what's that fucker's name? Tom. Tom. So uh, there's not much to say about this, except I guess that's part of Bev getting her own autonomy. 
it's it's another step that she has to go through that the other characters don't necessarily have to, which is to escape the cycle of domestic violence that she's been in her whole life. Now she's not able to fully escape it because Tom, of course, follows them to Derry. But she's made pretty much the most significant step there. And again, as I said I, before, I think this is a story King's pretty good at telling and he's told it many times from different characters' point of view, whether it's Dolores Claiborne or um, uh, the woman in Rose Matter. Um, Jesse Burlingame. I can remember these names. Don't worry. They'll come to me. So, um, the abused woman is a is a common trope in, in King's fictions, obviously. But then we jump straight to Bev's first encounter with It. Apparently, her first encounter with It. I would maybe suggest, of course, all her encounters with her father, especially him sexualizing her and creeping on her and abusing her and being violent towards her, are probably to some degree influenced by It. So those could be chalked up to encounters with it in a, after a fashion. But for the most part, this is her first direct encounter with it that she remembers and that comes to her at any point in the story. And that is the voices in the drain. So it's clear here that her encounter with it has two parts. First, the the they're both pretty horrifying, but the the first encounter is maybe more memorable from a reader's standpoint, especially if you're reading this as a younger person. The second one is more horrific from, um, for me now when I think about it. But, uh, but the blood coming from the drain and the voices from the drain. Pretty creepy stuff. We got to hear the voices of, of her friends, one of whom died. I think it's, is it Veronica Grogan is the one she was acquainted with? Um, we hear the voices coming from there and we actually hear it aware that the losers are forming a group we know this because unlike like it doesn't talk about um bill or georgie or eddie or ben hanscom or these people to other victims like to eddie colcran no they it's aware that a group is formed and it's trying to break it up i think it's it's it realizes this could be a threat and this is after the encounter with the werewolf yeah, so this is right at the end of june of 58 so it's already been hurt by them and it's trying to i think it's trying to keep beverly out in part so it is trying to scare her into doing that but his real weapon for taking beverly out of the game is is something else um, that's why it's not a hand out of the drain trying to kill her. It's not it directly trying to kill her. It's it relies on her. He, it is doing exactly what he did with Dorsey Cochran, using the father, using the abusive father. So that's the second encounter with it is her father, and the real physical threat here comes from her father. Obviously, her father who beats her. He has always abused her, but this chapter we see its influence on her father expanding quite significantly so much of this chapter is a prolonged visit uh, at the march family we we do get uh um there's not much about beverly's mother it seems she's somehow a victim of her of Bev's father too she's like a strong kind of stoic woman working class woman 
reminds me a little bit of Ben's mother, but Ben's mother's not dealing with a with a husband, but uh, Bev's mom is, and Bev's mom is not really part of the story. We don't hear much about her later on. Um, maybe on some level Ben blames her, but there is love here in this family, but it's it's all there's this cloud overhanging it, which is Bev's father creeping on her and uh, trying to molest her. And then when not able to bring himself to do that fully, he physically attacks her, right? So it's, uh, it's also connected to her maturation. So as I said in, when I talked about the last chapter, I think sexual awakening, even though it's a little awkwardly placed with 11-year-olds, it's not 100% misplaced because that is when people start to um, develop sexual interest, right, at that age. So, but her father, more horrifyingly, is also developing this interest in, in Beverly. Now, um, so as I said, that's, that's the scarier part for me, and that's the bigger threat, not just the blood. It is a creepy scene, though, where there's the blood in the sink, and her father doesn't see it, and, and she has to, like, cover and say, well, it's a spider. It's good stuff. But then she seeks out her friends and asks them for help after this scene oh one more thing i wanted to say is like poverty being another weapon that it's able to use um that the beverly's family is poor and that helps with her isolation and it also is seems to be a, a, a contributing factor to the abuse in the family so anyways, bev goes out to the losers other losers and tells them and they're like okay let's just clean it up and so they, again, as a group, are able to achieve something. They defeat it, in a way, um, by cleaning up the blood. And they pool their money and take the rags, even though the adults won't see the blood on the rags, because they, they can't really believe it. Uh, they, they wash them, and there's all sorts of, again, to go back to sexual maturation, like, this is... It's blood it's something young girls fear because that's something that comes right the first period and that's involved with blood and bloody underwear and washing blood on underwear and these kinds of things are something girls experience um anyways i'll just leave it at that um blood is on purpose here it's not just uh King's like, oh, you got my Rolodex of scary things, blood in the sink. Now it's like for Bev Beverly for a reason. And that's at the same, like the blood comes out of the sink. At the same time, her father really starts to be sexually interested in her, right? And and she's confused by it because the mom says something like, does he touch you? She's like, well, yeah, dad touches me all the time. And then she's like, oh, that's not what I meant. It's like she doesn't even understand the question yet, but she will. It will just, it's that understanding is not far away, which is why I kind of, that, this sex has a place in this book because that's part of becoming the adult. Uh, making promises that you mean to keep is part of being an adult too, for that matter. Anyways, they clean it up and now we get Stan's story. So as they're doing this, and this is the whole, all six of them, Mike's not part of the group yet. Um, and then we get Stan finally tells story. He's about to tell it back in chapter seven at the end but they're interrupted by mr nell and now stan tells his story and it's really a nice one um and by the way 
<laughs> Talk, so go back to the film adaptations. How do you not film the werewolf scene? How do you not film Stan and the standpipe? With the bird watching and the... <coughs> how is that not... Uh, what? Why did the director not include... Like, Stan's being chased by some weird picture in the in the movie and not the kids in the standpipe? They give that to douchebag uh, Patrick Hockstetter, who's also fucked up in the movie version. They don't do him right. We'll talk about that in a few weeks, I'm sure. Anyways, enough complaining. Um, he is bird watching near the standpipe, uh, Bassey Park. Uh, the standpipe's in Bassey Park. And uh, there were some kids killed there previously. Was that back in the 30s or something? Victims of it, it seems. And uh, Stan sees them in the, in the standpipe. We also get some, like... Um, We also see another weapon. I guess that's what I want to say. Stan's able to use his... Like, he thinks he's using someone's rationality reflected in the bird book to kind of scare off the ghosts. But, again, because it's based on some belief, in the Hicks case, his disbelief that this can be real, his effort to try to trump what he sees with rationality, it helps win the battle. It seems to me. But it's a nice creepy scene where we got him in a slicker, which is just what Georgie had. We uh, He starts hearing camp town races and calliope music, and this draws him into the to the standpipe, and then he sees the, the dead, and he talks about how he's able to scare them off or, or dispel them. Maybe that's the right word. Dispel them with, uh, with the, the names from his bird book. It's a good scene. I don't know why these weren't used. I guess, I don't know, is reading the names of the birds a little too hokey? Is the giant bird that attacks Mike a little hokey? I don't, I don't, I don't think so. Is the werewolf too hokey for modern audiences? Well, anything they showed in the movie isn't better than that. The stuff in the movie mostly sucked and wasn't scary. What, some weird clown waving his arms around in 90% of the scenes? Sorry, it's not scary to me. This stuff is. This stuff in the book is. Sorry to complain. Um, so this chapter climaxes with the losers cooperating as a group on another project, the cleaning of the marsh bathroom um, and collecting all their stories. Now they have all the stories um, known to the group. Now, in the final scene of the chapter, uh, of course, a girl can't always be with the boys and there's certain things the girl has to face alone uh, without the help of the boys like blood um, so she investigates the drain and she puts her dad's tape measure she steals her dad's tape measure it's a great scene where she takes it and she starts pulling the tape measure down into the drain and it goes six inches 12 inches which is about as far as it should go right if you ever cleaned anything out of the drain it doesn't go much beyond that but it keeps going all the way to the whole length of the tape measure and then um, and then retracts and bleeds, so the blood's still there, and the blood is uh, restored. I think in that first movie version, the TV movie, they just had the blood come out again. Um, but this is, uh, it's a little bit different meaning. There's an interaction between her father and her and the blood 
father through the tape measure. I think something's going on there. I don't know. I can't really say. Um, so anyways, what to say about this chapter? Well, uh, obviously, Bev's parents, their relationship, their work, um, Ms. Marsh's, Mrs. Marsh's fears. She knows what's going on. She has the fear about what's happening to her daughter, and she's not really able to do anything about it. Uh, Beverly's father is facing economic pressure. Um, now, t King's typical abusive parents are drinkers. Uh, and I, I've often said when I talked about King, is like because I like to compare him to Lovecraft, because Lovecraft's like, hide the ha past, hide the history, and cover it up. Don't look into your your family history or the history of the building or whatever. Just ignore it. If you do look into it, you're going to be something horrible. You're going to have a horrible realization. You'll be driven insane. All right, fine. Now, King, I think, is about build, remembering. That's what this book's about, right? It's all about remembering. And to win, you must remember the past. You must face the evil, whether it's your country's past or your, uh, your personal past or whatever. It must be uncovered. But I do think King has two, or at least one Lovecraftian strain in him. And I was corrected on this once in a podcast with some other people. And I, I agree I'm wrong about this. I was too insistent. Because there is one thing that King does see as cyclical and rooted in family. And he's not saying covered up, but he does have this inheritance that I think King normally doesn't do. He doesn't rely on the inheritance, right? It's not like Ben Marsh or... Ben Mears's father was a vampire hunter and he has to carry on the legacy or something like that. Or that his father was a vampire and he has to figure that out. Or, you know, it's not like that. But there is cycles of, of abuse and there's cycles of drinking and there is that legacy. That is Lovecraftian. Right? So I'm, I'm ready to say that now. That is an inheritance from Lovecraft. This idea that there is a sin in the family. It's usually alcoholism or abuse. And maybe you don't have to look any farther than The Shining to see both of them at work. But uh, it's obviously in Carrie, and it's in other works, too. But it's especially in this one, too. All right. King's typical abusive parents are drinkers. In this case, he makes a point to remind the reader that Al Marsh lacks any vices outside of his abuse of Beverly. This reminds us of Richard Macklin, who was the stepfather of the Cochrane uh, boys, who also claims not to have any vices but still is driven to abuse. So, again, it's at play here. It's doing something to Bev's father. Now, he's eventually a possessed, like in the final part of the book, when the losers are driven into the, into the sewers to be killed by it. They are driven there by Beverly's father in a possessed state. So it's at work on Beverly's father. In another town... Beverly's father would not be an abusive father, I think. Yeah, that's what I think. Now, the importance of Stan's encounter and telling the story is he can no longer deny that it happened. Um, obviously, he's able to survive, survive the encounter by somehow using his own rationality or coming to terms with his rationality and using it as a weapon. But it's still magic, so there, it's very fuzzy. It's philosophically kind of fuzzy what Stan does to endure. It's like he uses his rationality in a magical way. But he's still not able to fully accept what he's seeing in front of his face. Um, now, Stan talks 
very dramatically or a little too dramatically for an 11 year old boy about being offended by the things happening in Derry. The things that he's realized is true. He's like, it's one thing to be scared. It's one thing to be, um, it's actually one thing to have something horrible happen. That happens. Serial killers happen. Violence happens. Cycles of abuse happen. But the supernatural offends him. That's a really powerful word for a child to use. Um, and I don't know what quite make, make of it. I think we're meant to pay attention to it because it is not something a kid should say. None of the other losers talk this way in this kind of elevated, very, very profound language about it. They're all very smart and they're all aware of what's going on. But this language of being offended by it, by the supernatural, is pretty astonishing. Um, now, another thing to talk about is just the hist we get some more local history here through the standpipe. And the standpipe is a symbol of dairy and the cycles and all that, like um, the Kissing Bridge, like the canals, like the barrens. These places don't change cycle to cycle. And so ghosts remain in these places, like the house on Newbold Street with its coal furnace. All right. And then I guess what fears play a role in Stan and Beverly's encounters with it? I guess Stan, it's it's this offense at the irrational, being offended by the irrational. And with Beverly, it's 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 sexual maturation. It's blood. Come on. It's right, right in our face. Um, but um, in both cases, belief plays a role in opposing it. And I'll also mention here, there's an interesting contrast that Stan wants to deny this using reason. And Beverly, when she uh, picks a fight with it again with the drain, she's trying to use reason, isn't she? She's using a scientific tool, a tape measure, to try to investigate it. She's being a scientist. And yeah, it's, it's you know, it brings the blood back. But it's, it's using reason. Uh, but generally, the what's going on with Bev's encounter is the group solves it by working together. Uh, Stan face it alone is able to, but is able to rely on his rationality somehow as a weapon. So it's a little not. I think Stan's story. The problem is we don't have Stan's point of view. Stan stands um, dead, so we don't get to him. We don't get his re reflection on it. We just get his story, as told to the other losers. All right, that's it. I'm excited. This book is so good. Um, in the next episode, I have to get back to the Civil War. I skipped a reading of my Civil War book because I'm so excited about this uh, Stephen King novel. But I'll, I'll, the next episode definitely will be back to the Civil War. But my next look at it will cover Derry the Second Interlude. Um, and then the Reunion. That's it. And there's just two chapters. Um, the reunion is, I think that's like the, the Chinese restaurant scene. Um, so yeah, it'll probably be a shorter episode because I can already tell. There's not going to be much to say about this. Part three, Grown Ups, my least favorite part of the book. Um, but maybe when I reread it, I might change my opinion. The walking tours are good. Three uninvited guests. That chapter kind of stinks. The reunion kind of stinks. Uh, but there's some nice moments. So let's uh, 
let's see. Let's hold judgment until next time. So that's it for now. Uh, see you next time. And I promise the next episode will be the American Civil War. If you're if you want to hear my thoughts on the post Gettysburg stuff, I just um, couldn't wait to talk about um, these two chapters. So that's it for now. See you next time. Thanks. Going down to Lonesome Town Where the broken hearts stay Going down to Lonesome Town To cry my trouble